Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation with nationally known gerontologist Carol Zernio and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron. This program provides health, wellness, and other information for caregivers who are vital to the health and well-being of so many people across our country. Now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel is on special assignment today. Joining us on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline from the Ohio State University, Columbus, Ohio, Dr. Todd Monroe, an associate professor of nursing there. And Dr. Monroe, it's a delight to talk with you. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. And as someone with a background that you have, including your experience in nursing and your doctorate degree. Uh, We live at a time where, while we're going to talk about pain and Alzheimer's patients, uh, it's important to mention uh, the challenge this country is facing when it comes to the COVID-19 virus. And I'm sure Ohio State is in the middle of trying to figure out what to do. Absolutely. We are are guided by um, excellent leadership at the moment. Um, And um, you may have noticed we were one of the first states, um, I believe, and among some of the first universities to take uh, measures to protect both the uh, staff, uh, students, um, and all those involved. And um, fortunately in nursing, we have a platform already in place in many of our instructional capacities to be able to, to, do, uh, to, to convert easily to online and virtual learning. So we're doing our best to keep things moving forward and keep everything safe and keep now, everyone safe. When you think about uh, what's going on in this country, and you have lived in several other spots. You got your bachelor's in nursing from the University of Southern Mississippi. Uh, you graduated only cum laude, earned your MSN from the University of Alabama College of Nursing. Uh, you have uh, earned your doctorate degree in nursing uh, from the University of uh, Tennessee Health Science Center. What was it that attracted you into such a caring profession? Wow. So um, I would have to say, so there was a... Um uh, it, it was a personal, um, uh, a family situation, and my I was living in New Orleans at the time. I was in my early twenties, uh, maybe about twenty, let's see, around twenty-three. Um, my uh, father had a heart attack at home. My mother, um, I remember receiving the news, and my mother contacted me, and she really did not know what to do. And I remember that that really struck me, and uh, it, it hit me. CPR, uh, other than, you know, calling 911, of course, but um, it really, um, unfortunately, we, we lost him, uh, but it was that seminal event uh, with a close, you know, with my father, and um, I never wanted to be in a situation where I didn't hopefully have some uh, some knowledge about what to do in that situation, so, um, you know, I, t- I took that, that moment, and um, and that's what really motivated me to, to leap into the caring professions. Well, you know, you weren't alone many Heart attacks happen at home, and many times the significant other of the family really don't know what to do. Exactly, and um, you know, and time is very precious. Uh, and um, you know, since that was not the, you know, that was probably let's see, that was more than twenty years ago. But mm. uh, you know, I think that uh, um, American Red Cross and other associations have really uh, come far in helping to um, offer courses, education and classes for the lay public to right. be able to administer CPR. And, and, of course, as we all know, defibrillators are much more common in, in most public places at this, you know, in, the, in the environment that we live in. Now, it's interesting. You've also gotten involved in the whole question of pain and 
patients with dementia, Alzheimer's patients as well. I have had a chance to interview here in San Antonio a relatively new organization called the Global Pain Association dealing with chronic pain, intractable pain. Uh, And one of the issues that uh, struck me in your work uh, is the assumption on the part of many that, well, you know, Alzheimer's patients, they don't know they have pain, but they do, don't they? Exactly, exactly. When you think about, uh, you know, if, 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 the, if the tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, it doesn't make a sound. But, uh, but absolutely, our research, um, early research, uh, looking at more, at the more basic science, some of the brain physiology, uh, to try to really get at that question, um, you know, so are the sensory regions, are the, are the components of the brain uh, function that help to process pain? How is the perception of pain? Um, experienced in people. These are people that can still communicate, of course, that are, that are um, parts of these studies, but it does provide great insight into, into those that may have you know, more severe um, Alzheimer's to be able to participate in those types of studies. But what we have found and what others have found, um, you know, those, those parts of the brain that are responsible um, are certainly uh, they're working, they're intact, um, but the perception and their experience of pain may be altered uh, from what we display normally and what we think as someone who might be cognitively intact or healthy. We'll talk more about that. I want to remind those who just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Carol Zerniel, on special assignment today, and we're talking at The Ohio State University with Dr. Todd Monroe, Associate Professor in the College of Nursing, talking about his work trying to improve pain management and talking about Alzheimer patients and others with dementia who may not show pain, uh, but they feel it. Uh, how is it presented then if the patient can't articulate to you, can't say, well, you know, Dr. Monroe, this really hurts me. Uh, I'm in great pain. How, how do they let you know? Exactly. So um, great question. And one of the things that we rely on as the course of dementia progresses, and, and all of us have known someone, either in our families or close friends, who have uh, suffered this terrible disease and um, as the course of the disease progresses, the ability to communicate is eventually lost, and the, certainly the, the ability to communicate normally. Um, now, it is uh, in your question. Let's, if, we're, if we move to the more severe, let's think of the most severe cases of people with end-stage Alzheimer's. Uh, they're basically nonverbal, and to think about how they may be experiencing pain, we have to rely on what we. Uh, for, on observational measures or observational indicators. And there actually are several validated tools. I'll give a plug here. There's a wonderful website called geriatricpain.org. It's hosted by the University of Iowa. I've got some close colleagues there that do wonderful pain research in this area. Um, and there are there's some wonderful resources for caregivers and all older adults or anybody that's, uh, that is um, interested in learning more about this topic. But in particular, you would look for changes in their regular behavior. So dental pain, for example, you may see someone that uh, suddenly stops eating or they're having difficulty eating. And you might not think normally, but that, that, that could very well be an indication of a cavity or some sort of dental pain. Negative vocalization is one, um, especially uh, on topic with the show, caregivers who know the person really, really well usually know if the behavior is something different than what is normal. Uh, banging their hand on a table, for example, when they normally might not do that, could be an indication of pain. Um, mm-hmm. uh, blinking, uh, blinking rapidly is another indication. Um, we're all aware of grimacing, 
That is a very common uh, uh, when we get a shot, we usually grimace, but uh, but also grimacing is something to look for in these folks. But, really? Uh, but there are some really great uh, behavioral indicators that we can use um, as, as tools. And caregivers frequently can be the frontline leaders in helping healthcare providers to understand and recognize pain and actually need to step up at times and, and be the advocate when possible for, for pain intervention. And, and if you believe that... Uh... Uh, your care recipient uh, is struggling with pain. Uh, can you be an advocate for uh, providing some kind of relief for them? Uh, do do medications help? They, they certainly can. They certainly can. Um, there are there are several hierarchy of pain medications and uh, that are generally recommended. You would want to start with things that are uh, less uh, intense, if you will, or not as strong, such as Tylenol. Um, ibuprofen is okay. Sometimes you have to be really careful. With that, but that's a class of drugs called NSAIDs, but they can cause bleeding risk and they can cause some problems in older folks. So you want to be sure. But Tylenol is certainly acetaminophen, would be the uh, you know the generic, but uh, would be a good starting point. Yeah, an NSAID uh, being mm-hmm. an NSAID being something like a leave. Exactly, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So you want to avoid that if you can. If you can, I would, you certainly would want to speak with your doctor, your nurse practitioner, physician assistant, um, in ensuring that you're okay with those medications because they can incre- increase the bleeding risk. Uh, similar, not to the same effect, but similar to aspirin. Right. But, uh, um, and sometimes I've uh, uh, seen uh, if, they, if an older individual is taking one of those medications, um, a proton, uh, something like Prolisec, right? Something to help uh, with the stomach can, ah. can alleviate some of those symptoms. But uh, the Tylenol first line, and then you can move up the ladder and move to, to narcotic prescriptions as well very carefully, uh, especially if there's chronic um, pain conditions. And this population certainly is at risk from suffering with those. It's interesting you mentioned uh, Prolisec, and my first thought was, uh, how would you know if an Alzheimer or a dementia patient is suffering from acid reflux, for example? Very good question. So that would be a painful condition, and you would look for those behaviors. Other than the obvious signs that you might see if they actually had, you know, experience the reflux, but, um, but holding their stomach would be one, right. or again, a behavior that may squirming in the bed or just restlessness, irritability, agitation. And again, that, would, that, that, that could be acid reflux, but that could also be an indicator of, of pain in general, hmm. those types of behaviors. That's why Tylenol is usually considered one of the first uh, medications that you would choose for uh, a, a non-narcotic pain medication in this, these individuals. Now, there are numerous um, complementary alternative medications uh, or, or therapies, I'm sorry, uh, complementary and alternative uh, therapies that could be used in these individuals as well before even moving to pain medications, uh, such as music therapy, aromatherapy. I've been, there, there are some studies out there that have shown some, you know, some, some benefit to those sorts of those sorts of treatments. Uh, when you think about our current research, you know, if you have an older adult with Alzheimer's with a broken hip, right, or a fractured hip, or something that we know is painful in people that are cognitively intact, you need to be, be more thinking more aggressively, of, of course. I want to find out in just a minute what attracted you uh, to take a look at th- this area. You mentioned your dad mm-hmm. having a heart attack, and that led you uh, into a healthcare caring field. 
What is it, and tell me in just a moment or two, attracted you to taking a look at dementia patients and pain? You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, Carol Zerniel, our co-host on assignment today. Our special guest, Dr. Todd Monroe, Associate Professor of the College of Nursing at The Ohio State University. You may be experiencing anxiety or stress regarding all the news about COVID-19 or what is commonly referred to as coronavirus. You are not alone. Optum is opening its emotional support helpline, providing access to specially trained mental health specialists. This is a toll-free number and it will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week for as long as necessary. This is a free service. Anyone in need of emotional support is welcome to call. The number is 866-342-6892. That's 866-342-6892. One more time, 866-342-6892. This message brought to you by WellMed Medical Management and the WellMed Charitable Foundation. For more information on WellMed, go to wellmedhealthcare.com. That's wellmedhealthcare.com. We are so pleased you are listening to us on 930 AM, The Answer. This is Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel, our regular co-host on special assignments, so I am here just by my little lonesome and Dr. Todd Monroe is with me as well on our Caregiver SOS On Air Hotline. He's an associate professor of, in the College of Nursing at the Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio. We've been talking about his area of study and his focus on pain and pain management among dementia and Alzheimer's patients. And I was asking him, well, what attracted you to this area of study? Is there a family member or a friend uh, with Alzheimer's who you wondered about pain? Um, exactly. Uh, and, uh, similar to the story I shared with, about my father, right. um, my, my grandmother, um, was, uh, diagnosed with, um, Alzheimer's disease, um, a few years. No, actually, um, it was, my father was still living at the time. Um, and she lived with Alzheimer's for about 13 years. Um, as she progressed and most, most individuals do, she was eventually institutionalized. During the course of that time, she was she lived for about 13 years, which is quite a while with the disease. But um, I was able to obtain my nursing degree and uh, went on um, early on in those early years. Um, I was working in the ICU, and um, um, as my grandmother progressed, she was at the severe stages, and she was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and we had some decisions to make as a family. You know, here she is at the at end stage Alzheimer's, um, basically nonverbal. And uh, what de- what decisions do we need to make uh, regarding what kind of treatment do we put her through? And um, so, of course, we advocated for hospice and began to move in those directions. But at, at this time, as a nurse, I um, uh, realized the challenges uh, that that not only nurses and uh, care workers in long term care faced in um, not only assessing pain in these individuals, but uh, managing care, you know, in those institutions coming from an ICU. But it was that experience that really, really shifted my, um, my thoughts and, and, um, and, and career trajectory and uh, moving to get my, uh, moving into research and obtaining my PhD um, and trying to help solve this, uh, you know, this piece of the puzzle. You know, how, how do they feel pain? Are they still feeling pain? To what capacity do they feel pain? And how can we better assess and manage their pain? 
In fact, you break down into three major categories, uh, your findings, and one that just stands out, well, all three stand out, but people residing in long-term care facilities with dementia who died with a terminal cancer, like your grandmother, right, were at risk of receiving no pain medication at the end of life. And I assume Um, that's because they figured, well, you know, they got dementia, they wouldn't know anyhow. Um, that is that is probably a safe assumption. I, I do believe that also that it, it's not so much that maybe they don't. Uh, it, it's um, the thing that added the the, um, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And so if there's someone that cannot ask regularly for pain medication, the um, if you're and I'm sure you guys all are so familiar with long term care. Um, staffing ratios sometimes can be very challenging. Sure. And if you have someone who's nonverbal, um, who's in their room, um, and maybe they be they may be expressing some of these behavioral signs that we talked about earlier in the show, but if there's not someone there to to see them in the moment, or they're not able to press their button, so to speak, to get help, then um, that could be another reason for it. But but uh, I think that that it you know that it should be both um, that. Um, the belief that, well, if they're not complaining so much, when I've got other folks that are complaining, then maybe they're not hurting as much. But, um, but it's probably the inability to, uh, for them to self-report. Is, 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 um, but, but you're right. They're at great risk of, of not receiving pain medication. I know and the... this has been shown not only in our work but across numerous studies. We were the, I think we were the first study to show it in cancer. Interesting. I know the few times I've been in the hospital after surgery, my finger never left that button pumping for more pain meds. So I can, right. I can imagine what it's like not getting them. Right, exactly. And this is where I think it shows that, you know, uh, uh, your caregivers um, and, and, and proxies, uh, close friends, um, individuals that know uh, folks so well, and also think about the population of older adults that have outlived their families. So there are those people that are really... Um, isolated to a degree from, um, in, in a way that they don't, you know, that they've outlived their family members or, or close or, or, or um, in some cases, sadly, their, their, um, their children, um, but really need, um, you know, extra eyes on them. Um, uh, there have been uh, individuals I know that have looked at, uh, including the, um, the care uh, associates that work in long-term care to help with pain assessment these individuals. If you think about them, you know, bathing them daily, I'm helping them with toilet team. Um, you know, they become very familiar, and they, right. become, they can become a very good proxy for pain assessment and, and, and um, should be encouraged to do so. Now, you also found out in your study uh, that uh, using experimental pain and functional neuroimaging, uh, you demonstrated that while central pain mechanisms in the brain are altered in Alzheimer's disease, people with uh, Alzheimer's have intact central pain pathways yet they may have a delayed response in feeling pain, uh, which means what, doctor? Uh, yes. So, so in, in those experiments, what we were trying to accomplish in a controlled setting, meaning that um, instead of using a clinical condition as, our, as, what we, as the research study, we looked at individuals uh, with Alzheimer's disease um, that were, in essence, pain-free, and we used experimental FDA-approved FDA, uh, um, an FDA-approved device that, that evokes a thermal stimulus. And these are all people who can still communicate. I want to reiterate that. Um, and, uh, and are able to follow uh, commands. But what we found is that the, when the, the time when they felt 
the pain from the experimental donor um, on the placed on the palm of the hand, there was a delayed response, or let's just say that the temperature was higher before they reported pain compared to the control group, meaning that they did respond, but it was delayed. So um, they could be at risk for suffering from pain a little bit longer clinically before it is self-reported if we're not keeping close eyes on them. Right. Um, and so that's the, from the translational perspective, from the experimental you know, back into the, to the hospital setting or into the nursing home or into the home setting. And that's where having um, really close eyes and, um, like I said, caregivers or family members you know, watching um, after them is, is so important. But so it's, it's not that they're not hurting. It, there could be a delayed response. Um, as well. And then one other finding, which uh, I found fascinating, you you found that the females are more sensitive to pain and find pain more intense, while us guys report mm-hmm. pain as more unpleasant. That is correct. And we looked at that in the Alzheimer's population. We've also examined that in, in healthy older adults as well, but specifically in the Alzheimer's uh, population, um, and we have a current study trying to extend those findings, but pain is considered um, a multidimensional um, uh, phenomenon. Um, generally, we think of pain in the sensory component. We go to the hospital, we go or into the clinic, and someone says, what's your pain? Rate it from zero to 10, and we call that a sensory scale. Um, but there is another dimension, which is the emotional dimension, um, and there's a cognitive dimension, but more specifically, an emotional dimension, which can be how unpleasant the pain is. How much does it bother you? So you could see someone uh, with a paper cut, for example, that doesn't doesn't mean anything. You might know of someone who you know it, you would think it's the end of the earth because they're going to have a paper cut. But to them, it's it's really severe. But in this case, what we found is that the, that males uh, using an unpleasantness scale found the pain. Males with Alzheimer's disease that is, found the pain to be significantly more unpleasant than the females. So once again, to think about that clinically, if we're only asking people to rate their pain from a zero to ten on the on the sensory scale, we may not be capturing you know males that are quote suffering, if you will, mm. in this unpleasantness domain, which would still warrant pain treatment. Similarly, just as if it were an intensity scale. So um, our program research is trying to advocate and push towards um, you know, pain assessment using a multidimensional scale. And there are, there are several scales out there that do it, but more, to make it a more clinically um, common phenomenon, if you will, to ask people how intense is your pain, how unpleasant is your pain. Yeah, because normally it's just that 1 to 10 scale. Where are you? Right, exactly. exactly. And, and although kids get asked very often using uh, the smiley and unsmiley faces, what kind of pain they're exactly. experiencing. Exactly, exactly. And that can also be used in, in, in Alzheimer's. And earlier in the course of the conversation, um, I do want to make this point when, when you mentioned the FACES scale, that um, thinking about the continuum of Alzheimer's from you know, being, being very mildly cognitively impaired to severe, that uh, an assumption that we've talked about in the show is that you know, just because you have a diagnosis doesn't mean you cannot report pain, much less any other problem that you're having. And numerous studies have shown that people with mild and moderate Alzheimer's or other dementias can reliably point, uh, report their pain in the moment. So how is your, you know, are you hurting now? Are you, basically, are you hurting? It's when you think about recall. You know, right. I mean, how was your pain last week? So, but, but, but they can reliably report pain now. And you should always seek to get a self-report first. Always, always, always. 
and um, then move on to an observational you know, measure. Um, but, but always try to seek a self-report. One other interesting finding that we had was that if you simply ask what we're talking about, they may not spontaneously report pain at the same rate as cognitively intact. And that's an area of research that we're hoping to move into. It may have to do with the motivation, motivation uh, the parts of the brain that are responsible for behavior and motivation. Right. But when you ask them directly, they'll report that that spontaneous report of, hey, I'm hurting down here, um, come help me, um, it, it, it seems to be less, and, and even in mild. So as a clinician or even a caregiver, you know, a family member, just simply ask, you know, are you hurting? And see if you can... You know, obviously try to get a response. Well, that's a really good point. We are flat out of time, and uh, uh, before I let you go, I have to ask you, you, you've been at some universities that have such high profiles, University of Alabama, Roll Tide Roll, University of Tennessee, the Volunteers, now at the Ohio State University, Go Bucks. Uh, How do you switch allegiances? (laughs) Uh, Very carefully, very carefully. (laughs) I've got several flags in numerous rooms in my home, but... uh, but each one of my alma maters I hold uh, near and dear, and I was, uh, it, was, uh, I was, it was great to be able to go to so many different places and experience the culture and to learn from so many wonderful mentors that have helped me throughout my career at every institution. Well, I appreciate that. I did my that. postdoc at Vanderbilt University, so I was also um, a Commodore in, in the mix of all of that. Ah. But truly, I'm a butt now. Thank you very much. We'll talk soon, and I appreciate you coming on. We'll, we'll do a follow-up with you in a bunch of months and, and see where you are in these studies, Dr. Monroe. I would appreciate it so much. Thanks for having me. Have okay. a great day. Bye-bye. Dr. Todd Monroe, Bye. Associate Professor, College of Nursing at The Ohio State University. I'm Ron Aaron. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, and we will talk with you again real soon right here on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, an exclusive presentation of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. We welcome emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. Join co-hosts Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron next week for more on caregiving, improving the health and well-being of caregivers and their care recipients everywhere. For more on caregiving and podcasts of our programs, visit caregiversos.org.